my name is Chris Turner, and I'm the, the family pastor here. I'm excited to be with you this morning. Um, so if you've been around the last few weeks, you've been with us as, as Pastor George has been walking us through our series uh, on hope. And I hope and pray that as we've been walking through this together as a church, that God has begun to restore in, in your personal hope, in your personal life, um, in, your, in your relationships, in your prayer life. And it's just something that's been really, really beneficial for you. Because as we come into this week, this Holy Week, this Easter week, we have no greater hope than the fact that we serve a risen Savior. Amen? Amen. Well, this is where I want to start off with a, a, a question, just a little, a little crowd participation, if, if you don't mind. All right, so in just a second, by a, by a show of hands, um, how many of you uh, would consider yourself a planner? And what I mean by that is that if you don't know what you're doing for lunch after church or this afternoon, um, that's something that's already is bothering you right now. Or, or you may be even on the extreme side that you may not know what you're doing a month or six months from now or a year from now. And that's something that, that causes a lot of anxiety in your life and just really, really bothers you and kind of freaks you out. So if, if you consider yourself a planner this morning, raise your hand. All right. Oh, that's a good number. That's a good number. Awesome. Well, as you can see, I, my hand was definitely not raised because I am not a planner. I mean, I, I, I'm from a family of mostly non-planners. Uh, I know, I know. And so like, I remember there'd be times as a kid that we would just, we would just get in the car and my dad would just start driving and we had no idea where we were going, what we were doing. We just, like, ah, we'll just figure it out on the way. We'll just, we were just kind of fly by the seat of your pants kind of people. I and mean, that's just, that's just who we are. That's what we did. And this is an aspect of my, my personality um, that I would lovingly say drives my wife crazy. For sure, because she is 100% a planner. So she was in the first service and she, her, her hand was literally the fastest hand up, right? Um, because, because she is a fail to plan, is a plan to fail type of person. And in, in, in our house, the most common question that's asked is, so what's the plan? And of course, my co most common response is, eh, we'll figure it out, right? And like, I, I know that's not what you're supposed to say to a planner. I'm working on it, sorry. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm getting better, I'm growing. But, um, so because we have these seasons in life where we desperately wanna know what the plan is. We have these seasons where we go through and we're just like, God, what is going on? And, and it's not just because we wanna know where to go to lunch or where to go on vacation. Um, it's because many times I mean, life can just kick us in the teeth. And it's, it's seasons of life where a loved one passes away or uh, when we get those test results back from the doctor, or uh, when we, we lose our job, or we, we as a parent, we struggle with our kids. I mean, these are seasons in life where we, we look to God and we desperately wanna know what in the world is the plan? So this morning, we're gonna be looking at another aspect of hope. We're gonna continue in that series of hope, and we're, we'll be talking about our hope in God's plan, our hope in His plan. Because one of the most comforting things to me about scripture and, and truths about God is that God is a God with a plan. And his plan is eternal. His plan can't be changed. It can't be interrupted. And ultimately, it's for my good. And it's for his glory. And as we enter into this holy week of Easter, I'm reminded and comforted that I can hope and trust in God's plan. Not just for me, not just for you, but for the whole world. Because Easter is one of the clearest examples that God does have a plan and that he cares about us. You know, from the beginning, we were the problem. 
From the beginning, we messed it up. Like, just so you know, this world is not the way that God created it. God created this world perfect, without fault, that our relationship with, with him was, there was nothing to be lacking when it comes to our relationship with him. There was no heartache, there was no disease, there was no death, there was no sin. We, we are the problem. We're the ones that messed it up. And since we are the problem, we are not the solution. And what Jesus will begin to prove in this final week of his life in ministry is that he, and only he, is the solution, is the ultimate solution to the problem, the problem of sin and our need to be reconciled back to him. So I, for one, am glad that, um, that God had a plan, you know, especially at Easter, um, because sometimes... You know, we can come up with some silly plans, you know, us, uh, you know, people. We can come up with some, some weird plans at times. So, like, I mean, I just have to ask. So, like, so Easter, uh, like a magical rabbit that lays eggs and hides them. Really? That's what we got? That's what we came up with? So, like, seriously? I mean, so, I mean, I'll just be vulnerable with you this morning. I'm, I'm just working this out. This may be in my own personal life. But I've just, I've just always kind of thought that the Easter bunny was just a little creepy, I mean, I don't know if that's you. I mean, I'm getting help. I'm, I'm talking this through. I'm being honest with you. Like, I just think he's always been just a little scary. So, okay, instead of me trying to convince you, let me, let me just show you some examples, okay? All right, so here's the first one. Yeah, so there's, there's something off here, okay? So one, I mean, I'm pretty sure this rabbit is not going to be laying eggs in a straight line, okay? Maybe too much eggnog, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, oh man. Okay, well, let's. Show, I'll show you the next one. Here's another one. All right. Yeah. So that baby's face says it all. <laughs> that baby knows something is not right. And this, this rabbit also looks like it could be a bank robber. <laughs> Hides eggs by day, robs banks by night. I don't know. It's just something is not right. That thing is creepy. I'm telling you. All right. So here's here's my favorite one. Here's the last one. Yeah. Don't don't look at him in the eyes. If you look at him in the eyes, you will turn to stone. <laughs> he will steal your soul. Oh my gosh. See, that's what we're dealing with, all right? So yeah, no thank you. That thing is uh, creepy. It'll give you nightmares. <laughs> but so, so what does, what is Palm Sunday, what does it have to do with God's plan for our life? When it, when it comes to thinking about what Jesus did on Palm Sunday on that first Sunday, what does it, what does it have to do with, with God's plan for our life? So let's, let's jump into it. So Palm Sunday celebrates Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. So Palm Sunday celebrates Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem and marks the beginning of the Holy Week leading up to Easter. It is also the beginning of the last week of Christ's ministry and time here on earth. All right, so we're going to read Matthew's account of uh, Jesus' triumphal entry. So if you've got your Bibles, um, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, we'll be in verses 1 through 11. I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole passage, um, and then we'll come back and talk about it here in just a second. So let's just read the whole passage. So verse 1, here we go. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. 
They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Okay, so this passage is, is jam-packed with, with a lot of stuff. There's a lot of historical context. There's some prophecy. Um, there is, uh, there's some pretty significant stuff that's happening here. Um, so what I want to do is I want to camp out on a few key things that's happening here. Because if you were a first century reader of this and like you had some of this historical context, these things would have jumped off the page to you. Or if you were there that day, you were seeing this in real time as Jesus came into the city. These things could have been unmistakable, the things that Jesus was doing. And so I want to talk about that. And then I want to talk about what, uh, what are some things that, that mean for us today. When we look at the story, how can we apply this um, to, to us today? So where is Jesus in his ministry right now leading up to this? So Jesus' ministry at this point has been going viral. Jesus has been traveling, teaching, healing, performing all kinds of miracles, and really proclaiming some pretty bold stuff that's getting him a lot of attention. And according to John's account of the triumphal entry, just right before this, um, is when Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. So news was getting out about Jesus. People were interested. They were intrigued. I mean, they were excited about Jesus. Everyone was anxiously awaiting his next step. Could he be the one? Could he be the Messiah? And so everyone was looking to him. What's going to happen? And you get this sense as you read the story from beginning to end that everything was kind of building to this point. Because ultimately it had been. They just begin to play out a little bit differently than what many expected, but exactly the way that God planned it from the beginning. So Jesus and his disciples, they decide to make the the 17-mile journey from from Jericho to Bethany and then into Bethphage. And so here's a, I'll throw up a map here just real quick to kind of give you some some geographical context of where they're they're going and where they're heading and their travels. Um, So as they're in in these cities just kind of right outside of Jerusalem, these are like suburbs of, of Jerusalem basically. Um, so Jesus, as they're outside the city, he sends two disciples into the city to get a donkey and it's colt. You know, when I, you know, when I read this, I think, you know, the disciples had to stop and think, this is a really strange request. <laughs> like, you, you want me to go into the city and just like take someone's donkey? Like, this is okay? Like, this is what's happening? Okay, all right. Sure, you know, and Jesus seems to kind of sense their their uh, their hesitation with this. So he says, "Hey, if anybody says anything to you, just don't worry. Just say that the Lord needs them. It'll be okay. I, I promise. I promise." So they go and do exactly what Jesus tells them to do, and, and things happen just as Jesus said. So this so. So this don like just talking about this donkey thing. Like, why is this significant? Why does Matthew take a pretty good chunk of this passage and, and kind of give you the backstory of Jesus' entry into the city and talk about this donkey? Well, he gives you a little bit of a glimpse of why this might be important in verse 4 and 5. So let's take a look at that. In verse 4, it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you on a donkey, humble, uh, hum- coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What Matthew is doing here is he's referencing the Old Testament. This is a passage straight out of Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
And what this is, is this, is this is a verse that was written hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on the scene. And what Jesus typically did, and he did all throughout his life, is he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. It was one way that Jesus used to prove who he said he was, to prove exactly who he was. And so Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy here. And so Matthew is pointing this out, that this is really, really important that Jesus does this, and it's significant. So the significance of arriving on a donkey is something that is, that is really, really important we should pay attention to, and not just for Old Testament prophecy, but for these are your next blanks to fill in. It says, arriving on a donkey was a statement of his intent and symbolic of his purpose. Arriving on a donkey was a statement of his intent and symbolic of his purpose. So this is the only time that you see Jesus traveling um, and, and he wasn't walking. Um, you know, riding on an animal in that day was something that was left up for, it was, it was a privilege of the wealthy. And when you, what you see of, of Jesus' ministry up until this point is that he and the disciples, they would travel from town to town and they would walk. You know, and many times, sometimes they'd be on a boat because you know, some of the disciples were fishermen, they had access to boats, um, but they walked. They went to these towns and they, they, he, he taught, he performed miracles and he would just be among the people. And what Jesus wanted to do is he wanted to make a statement that this time, this time arriving into Jerusalem, this was different. This was something different. And also there's something that's interesting is many times throughout Jesus' ministry is that when the, the crowds would gather, many times Jesus would escape. He would find a way to get around the crowds and get away from them and get alone to pray or be alone with his disciples. Um, but this time he was welcoming the crowd. He was drawing attention to himself. So the disciples must have been watching this and thought, it's happening. This is going down. Jesus is about to take his place. This is, this, he is about to prove to everyone that he is the Messiah, that he is the king. And everything was happening just as they hoped. Uh, it was also symbolic. Um, this was not the first time that a king had entered into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Um, a Hebrew person watching that day could have known the history of kings riding on a donkey. Um, Jesus recreates the return of King David, returning to, returning to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey from 2 Samuel 19. Also, when Solomon rode into Jerusalem for his enthronement, he was riding on a donkey in 1 Kings 1, 38-39. This was a, a symbol of peace and humility when a king would ride into the city riding on a donkey or, or, or mule. And so that's something that's, that's pretty important. It's something we should pay attention to. And something that honestly is probably a little bit unexpected by the Hebrew people when they were watching. And we'll talk about that a little bit more here in a minute. So that's the deal with, that's the, deal with the donkey, right? Like that gives you a little bit of a backstory on what, maybe what Jesus was trying to, to communicate and try to accomplish by, by, by riding in on a donkey. Okay, so now, what's the deal with the palm branches and the clothes? Um, what's going on with that? Because you might have been like me as a kid, and I remember having this question, and you read this story, and you thought, so why were there a bunch of naked people waving around palm branches? <laughs> why are they taking all their clothes off and waving these palm branches around like, that does not seem like something that I would want to be a part of. Like if that was me riding into that city on that donkey, I would like, let's turn this thing around. Uh, I think I saw a sign for a Bucky's on the other side of Jerusalem. We can hold it till we get there because whatever they're selling, we are not buying, right? So what, what does this mean? Why were people doing this? What, what does it mean um, with all this stuff that was going on? We see in verse eight what was happening. 
It says, most of the people, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. So we know from other accounts of the gospel that these were palm branches and waving the palm branches and laying the palm branches on the ground and laying their outer cloaks so they weren't naked, laying their outer cloaks on the road. This was equivalent to laying out the red carpet. It was historically a sign of welcoming a victorious king home from battle. The palm branches were also a sign of victory and celebration. So the palm branches were a sign of victory and celebration. This was also a sign that, that people in that day, there in Jerusalem, were welcoming Jesus, you know, maybe not as the Messiah, but maybe as a king, a political leader, someone who was there to overthrow the Romans and to sit upon his earthly throne. And we see this even a little bit more when we look at what the people were, were shouting as Jesus uh, rode into the city. And we read that in verse 9. So let's look at that again. And the crowds that went before him and that, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So, so imagine the crowd that could have been gathered that day. So there's, there's conflicting records on the actual population of Jerusalem at that time. Um, but what is not disputed is that the fact that during this week, during this week of Passover, um, that the population of Jerusalem could have been three, four, or maybe even five times larger than normal. Because people would travel to the city of Jerusalem for the week of Passover. So the city was busting at the seams. So this was not a small crowd. This was a large crowd that was gathered to witness this huge event. And they were all shouting, Hosanna, which means save us now. Hosanna to the son of David. This is them recognizing his lineage and that he is the Messiah King and that he was the rightful heir to the throne. They shouted, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. This is them quoting scripture to Jesus. This is a reference to Psalms 118, 25, and 26. And that says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They shouted, Hosanna in the highest. This is, this is giving God the glory for sending the Messiah. You know, when I first read this and first look at this, I think, man, they get it. They understand who Jesus is. They understand what he's about to do and what he's about to accomplish and who he truly is. But what we see from the story is that the people missed it. Even the disciples missed it. But what a scene this must have been. The city was electric. In, in, verse, in verse 10, it says that the whole city was stirred up. If people didn't know who Jesus was, they wanted to know who he was. And if Jesus was looking to make a statement with this entrance, he accomplished his goal for sure. So looking at some of these details of the story, this is a story that I know you probably haven't, uh, this is, you've probably heard before. So looking at this, you may be thinking, so I get it. It may be significant to them that day. Some things were really important, but I mean, what does this have to do with me today? I mean, why should I care how Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? You know, what I'm hoping to do is, is I draw your attention to some of the aspects of the story is that we can see how some of these directly relate to us today. Because I think there are a few elements here that can help us restore our hope in God and, and that God has a plan and that his plan is good and perfect. 
And that we may not understand everything, just as though you were, people were watching that day, they may not have understood everything, but God has proven that we can trust him. Okay, so the first thing that we see about God's plan is that God's plan is not our plan. And that is a good thing. God's plan is not our plan, and that is a good thing. You may be thinking, okay, yeah, dude, I'm gonna stop you right there. My plan is awesome. Like, my plan includes lots of uh, sandy beaches and uh, drinks with umbrellas in them. Like, that's my plan. Like, if God would just give me my plan, that would be incredible. So let's just, let's just try it my way, right? <laughs> but of course, we know, we know that's not true. We know that many times in life, what we see, as, as things unfold in our life, we, what we see that God is doing in our life is far greater than what we could have ever come up with on our own. And so when it comes to making our plans and thinking about our plans, every one of our plans that we make is based and affected by our limited perspective in life. We, we see just very, just a little bit of the picture, of the, of the big picture. I mean, we, we have incomplete information and we use this incomplete information to formulate our plans and the things that we're doing. It's, it's not bad, it's not, it's not good, it's not indifferent. It's just, it's all we got, that's all we can do. And so let me, let me show you how this plays out, what I, what I mean by this. So one of the things that we, we love to do is we love to ask kids, so what do you wanna be when you grow up? Right, we love it. It's, it's always fun. You get some fun. You get some fun answers. Right, if you ask my my two and a half year old that question, you'll probably get something fun like an, an alligator or a fire truck or something like that. Which that sounds pretty awesome, right? But, but like we know, like we're dude, we're not trying to crush your dreams. But man, that's just it's just not going to happen, right? Because our perspective in life dictates to us whether that plan can become a reality, right? So we, let's, but in his world, in his two and a half year old little world, in his brain, like, if I want to be a fire truck, why shouldn't I just be a fire truck? Like, that just makes sense. So let's play this out a little bit more. If you'd asked me when I was in eighth grade the same question, so what do you want to do when you grow up? I would have said, I want to play in the NBA. Like, hey, why are you laughing? Like that, you know, that, that's true. I mean, that's why that proves, that proves my point that, you know, like now knowing that I have the vertical of a brick, <laughs> like there's just, the NBA is just not a reality, right? Like we know that this, my perspective in life dictates now that that plan is just not going to become reality. Or if someone asks me today, says, hey, Chris, what does the next 20 years of your life look like? I mean, I, I would have an idea I mean, I would have some thoughts about what I think, you know, maybe our, my, the best plan for me and my family would be. But ultimately, even if you've lived, if you're older than me and if you've lived through different stages of life uh, than me, um, you know that, man, things can affect the plan, right? I've, I've never had to raise a teenager and, and that can affect the plan, amen? Yeah, right? Um, or I've never had to pay for college. I've never had to care for a parent who, who is ill. Like, I mean, these, these are big things in life that happen that can affect our plan. And if you've lived through these things, you know to hold your plan loosely at times. And so, um, and so when we think about this, when we think about our plans, it's the idea of hindsight. Hindsight is all we have. When it comes to these plans, that's all we got. We got hindsight. But, but God has something even better. God doesn't just have a limited perspective. God has an eternal perspective. He not only has hindsight, he also has foresight. And he knows exactly what I need better 
than I know myself. Because what the Hebrews thought that day from Jesus, what they they expected of him, what they expected of their Messiah that day, was that he would ride into the city and that his sword would be drawn and an army of angels would be behind him. And he would be there charging into the city. He was there to take down the Roman oppressors. He was there to free his people. He was there to rescue them from their earthly captors. But what God knew, and what God knew in his eternal perspective was that they needed something even more than earthly freedom. One commentary states it like this. It says, however, the people, like the disciples, did not understand the Messiah's role as a suffering servant who would have to die. Also, they did not appreciate the universal scope of the kingdom. God had a plan, and his plan was bigger than just the people of Israel. It included them, but it was not just for them. His plan was bigger than that. His plan was for you and for me and ultimately for the rest of the world. His plan was unexpected but perfect. And just as Jesus entered into that city in a way that was unexpected by by many people, God may be entering into your life in a way that is completely unexpected. God may be using someone in your life, a, a, someone, a person or someone you have a relationship with or someone to, to minister to you in a time of need that you never saw coming. Like if someone told you that it would happen, you never would have believed it. But God is doing that in your life and it's completely unexpected. Or, or God may be using this completely unexpected time of, of unemployment to prepare you for the greatest season in your career. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know what your plan is. I don't know what my plan is. But what I do know is that as things play out in our life, as the plan begins to unfold, the plan is not according to what we want. Our plan, the plan is according to what we need. And that plan is created by someone who loves us and knows us even more than we, we know and love ourselves. We have to trust that. We have to rely on that. The second thing we see about God's plan is that it is a plan of joy and suffering. God's plan is a plan, that it is a plan of joy and suffering. You know, when I read this story, when I read the story of Jesus, and I, and I do this a lot, this is one of the things that I have to always try to remember. I always forget that Jesus was also a human. And when you read this story and you continue in this story for this next, for this next week, this last week of his life, you, you, you know that he began to have reservations on the things that he was about to do, right? He, he, was, he, he prayed, like ultimately he's like, God, can we do this another way, right? What does he pray? He says, can this cup pass from me? He, he was anxious, he was stressed. Scripture says his soul was filled with sorrow on the night before he was to die. But before that, On this day, on Palm Sunday, he entered into the city and people loved him. People celebrated him. People worshiped him. People were excited about him. They wanted to know him. That had to feel pretty good. I mean, don't forget, he has all these human emotions as well. Like that had to, who wouldn't want to be loved? Who wouldn't want people to cheer for them? Who wouldn't want people to love them? And I know if that was me, that would have messed with my head a little bit because here I am coming into the city and these people, they, they're cheering for me, they love me. They're, and then in just a few days later, they're going to send me to the cross? Like, really? Like, God, that's, that's the plan? And I'm reminded by the life of Christ in this final week that life is full of highs and lows. 
I mean, there's, there's seasons of unbelievable joy and unexplainable suffering. I mean, if Jesus himself, the very Son of God, who is perfect, without fault, is not exempt from this type of life that is full of joy and suffering, what makes you think that you would be? What makes, you think, what makes me think that I would be? But Jesus was riding high on the popularity of his ministry. The people loved him. And then just a few days later, they hated him to the point of murdering him. Jesus himself had to submit to suffering for a greater purpose. And he suffered more than we could imagine. You know, what this shows us is that when we go through these seasons of suffering, is that we have a Savior that can relate. When we go through these seasons, uh, we have a Savior that can sympathize. We have a Savior that proved to us that God's plan, though never void of suffering, is something that we can have hope and trust in. In James 1, 2-4, it says this, Count it all joy, my, brother, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." You know, I remember there was a season in, in my life where I was going through this time of doubt and questioning um, God, what was, you know, things that were going on. And I remember praying to God and God, saying, God, I just feel like I'm just this, this, this ship at sea, just getting tossed around by a storm. I'm just getting beat up on. I've got no direction. I've got no guidance. And so, God, this is what I need from you, right? This is me telling God how to do his job, right? That works out real well. Like, God, this is what I need from you. I need you to show up like a lighthouse, and then just guide me everywhere that I need to go. Like eliminate all the doubts, eliminate all the questions, eliminate everything in my life that, is, that would, would cause me pain. Like that would just be so much easier. God, why can't you do that? And I remember God laid on my heart for, uh, Psalms 119, 105, just the first part of that verse. And it just simply says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. And, th- and then it hit me. God is going to give us enough light for each step. God is going to give us enough light for each step so that with each step we would trust him. That with each step our faith in him would grow. We would rely on him. We would look to him. We would lean on him and not on ourselves. Because if the whole path was illuminated, we wouldn't have to do any of those things. We wouldn't have to look to him. We wouldn't have to trust him because we know exactly what's happening. And in these seasons, when we know we're going through hard times, we have to look and just trust God step, one step at a time, just knowing that he loves us and he's taking care of us and he wants the best for us. And easy should not be what we're after, but good. And I know that God's plan is good. And the last thing, so the last thing we see about God's plan is that it is a plan of redemption for people and the world. God's plan is a plan of redemption for people and the world. Now we're going to end on, this is the greatest part of the plan. God had a plan to redeem us and also redeem the rest of the world. Ephesians uh, 1, 7 through 10 says it like this. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which was set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
And what we see from this verse is that there is, through the blood of Jesus, there is redemption. That because of Jesus, there is forgiveness of sin. And there is grace that is lavished upon us. And it says in verse 9 that there was a purpose that was set forth in Christ. And that day on Palm Sunday, that first Palm Sunday, as Jesus rode into the city, as Jesus got up on that donkey and he headed into the city, he rode to his inevitable death just a few days later. And there was a purpose that was set forth in all of this. It was a purpose to redeem and unite all things to him. It was to make a way for sinners like you and I to know and be known by our Heavenly Father. And here's the thing. We do know another part of the plan. There is a day that he is coming back. We know that part. And this time, it's going to be a little bit more like the Jews thought he, was, thought he was coming the first time. Like, he's going to come back. This time, his sword will be drawn. This time, he will come, and he will not be opposed by anyone. This time, he will come, and all the power of heaven will be behind him. This time, when he comes, he will set things right. He will make the world right. He will put it back the way it's supposed to be. That is a day that we should be hoping for. That is a day that we should be praying for. But until that day... If you find hope in anything, find hope in the plan that was set forth that day on Palm Sunday to redeem you and I to him. To restore that relationship, to grant us access to a relationship with him. So as you walk out the door, grab one of these, uh, grab one of these crosses. Um, it's just a, it's a simple cross that's made out of a of palm leaf. And just take this with you as, as a tangible reminder. One, that, that the cross and the tomb and all the things that we're going to celebrate this, this, Easter, um, this Easter week, um, that through these, man, we have victory over sin and death, just as we sang this morning. But also take this and remember that Jesus is our King. He is our Messiah. He, he's our, he is our Savior. And also, He has a plan for our lives. He cares. And His plan is good and perfect for us. And He knows you better than you know yourself. And we have to trust that and we have to rely on that. And we have to have hope in his plan. You know, some of you may be asking the question this morning that, that some in the crowd were asking, who, who is he? Who is Jesus to you? you know, and I pray that this morning that you would believe, you would understand that Jesus was the plan for your salvation. That you would believe that. You would look to him. And know, and you would experience the redemption that could only be found through Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story. God, we thank you for the fact that from the beginning, God, you were creating a plan to bring all things back to you. God, though, even though that we messed things up, God, we see the, the grace and the forgiveness and the love and your plan that you have for us. And God, I pray that we would trust that this morning. God, there may be so many people here in this room that are going through seasons where they are questioning the plan for their life. God, I pray that you would allow them to look to you and trust you and remember that you hold them in your hands and you know them and you love them. And the plan that you have for their life is ultimately for their good and for your glory. And God, we, we, we trust you in that. And God, we do thank you for this hope that we have. We thank you for the hope and the plan that we have that you came, that you died, you rose again, and God, you're also coming back again.
We celebrate that this morning and we remember that this morning. And we love you in Christ's name I pray. Amen.